Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Anne Garnier, CEO and founder of Lisa Health. Lisa Health uses clinical research, expertise, and the latest technology to create simple, actionable, and impactful well-being programs for women going through menopause. The way they do this is they start with an assessment to find out where the woman is on her journey of menopause and then offer specific resources and communities based on that the phase that she is in the journey. They do all the legwork, deliver up-to-date science and resources, and connect you to a community for instant support. We had a fantastic conversation about menopause, one of the hot topics of this podcast. So I learned, uh, once again, a whole lot, and I know you're going to love it. So enjoy. Hey, Anne, how are you? I am doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, Brittany. Thank you for being on the show. You are going to talk about menopause, and our listeners have been craving some more information about menopause. That's great. I can talk about menopause all day long, (laughs) but I know we don't have that long. (laughs) I know. You know, originally I said that this uh, podcast was going to have 20-minute episodes, if, if there's any listeners who've listened to more than one, they're all about 45 minutes because I just can't stop. There's just too much right. info for 20 minutes, you know? No, there's so much to talk about. You know, like I said, I could go on forever. Where are you located? I am located in Oakland, California. So just outside of San Francisco. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I would love for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you personally. What's your background? Where where do you come Mm -hmm. from? You know, what did you study Mm -hmm. and and how did you end up working on menopause? Sure. Well, I've been in healthcare my whole career focused on, you know, solving complex healthcare problems with technology. And so I've addressed a range of clinical conditions. Uh, but I did a lot of work in women's health, uh, Some worked on some of the formative products around high-risk pregnancy and neonatal outcomes. And when I decided it was time to start my own company after helping a lot of other entrepreneurs start and build their companies, uh, I just kept going back to women's health as being a passion area for me. But, you know, I had moved past, you know, the reproductive stage of my life and other things were more interesting. So I was studying menopause. And then it just really coincided with my own menopause transition and experiencing the problems firsthand, which, as you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, that's a lot of what it takes to you know, start a company and, and grow it and make it successful is having firsthand experience with a problem and being passionate about it. Yeah. When I started my DNA-based dating app, I had to admit to all the investors when they said, well, why do you want to do this? And I'm like, well, I am a hopeless romantic geneticist who's tired of swiping, okay? (laughs) Like I always had to admit my singleness when starting the company (laughs) because I was like, that's why, right? That's why. Mm-hmm. It has to be more science-based and less swiping. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. I need data to find love and uh, no one's doing it. So I'm deciding I need to do it. Yeah. 
<laughs> right, right. Well, in that same vein, you need data to decode menopause. It's a very complex mm. life stage for women. And as you mentioned, you know, in our kind of pre-interview conversation, mm-hmm. not a lot of innovation mm-hmm. and, you know, really ripe for, hate to use the word disruption because it tends to be <laughs> overused. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's time to really you know, bring solutions to the table that have, you know, are going to meaning help women in a meaningful way. Yeah. So you're working in healthcare, working in entrepreneurship, you yourself are kind of getting Mm -hmm. to the, to the menopause phase. You're like, why is there no resources? So you decide to start Lisa Health. That's right. I mean, I did what every woman does when I started to have, you know, menopause symptoms. I went to my doctor and, you know, she's, she's great, uh, but she wasn't very helpful. Um, she didn't have a lot of information to offer. And, you know, very few physicians are actually trained in menopausal care. It's one of the big problems. Uh, mm. So I went, walked away being very disappointed, which is what every woman, almost every woman tells me. Yeah. And then I did, the next step was I went to Dr. Google, right? You know, <laughs> yes. And that was super complex and confusing. And that's the second thing women tell me is Dr. Google was really confusing. So you just feel like you're left to figure things out on your own. And, you know, women sort of start this whole cycle of trial and error with uh, remedies that, you know, largely don't work. Mm. You know, they have little or no evidence. Some are even unsafe. And so it's just like this phase of experimentation that for some women lasts years because the typical menopause symptoms on average for a woman will last five to seven years, but some women will experience symptoms over a 10 to 20 year period. That's a really long time to be dealing with symptoms (laughs) that are impacting your health, your quality of life, your relationships. It's crazy. So the fact that we don't understand menopause enough and the symptomatology to be able to decode that and say to a woman, oh, okay, here's really what your symptoms look like. And, mm. you know, these are the interventions that'll work for you. So mm. that's what Lisa Health is working on. So when did you start it? So I started a couple of years ago and we had the first version of our product is online. You can go to lisahealth.com and check us out. And so uh, today we give women uh, insights into their menopause transition um, using some predictive algorithms. And then we recommend evidence-based interventions uh, that are specific to their symptomatology and their goals. And then we kind of wrap that with you know all of the resources and education and support that a woman needs. Mm, I love algorithms. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I did have a co-founder CTO. He was actually the algorithm guru. But algorithms are like the new oil and gas. You know, data is the right. new oil. So I noticed on your website you had um, it was said like take this assessment. So is that assessment mm-hmm. the first like data input into your algorithms? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so it's a clinically validated tool that we use to be able to understand where a woman is at in her transition mm-hmm. and to be able to understand her symptoms and make the right recommendations that are personalized for her. Yeah. Um, so as you know, you know, when you are starting a company that's very tech uh, data driven, you need to actually collect some data mm-hmm. and create some initial algorithms and test those out. So that was part of our, you know, first phase proof of concept. Yeah. How many women have taken your assessment? 
Oh, hundreds and hundreds of women. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. And you said Mm -hmm. that, you know, so they take this assessment, they get this algorithm calculates like where they're at in their process. And then you Mm -hmm. recommend certain things to the interventions, as you say, to them. Mm -hmm. What are Mm -hmm. some of the menopause interventions? Because my understanding is that like the main one is hormone replacement pills or something, Mm -hmm. right? And then Mm -hmm. we have, we had, you know, Genev has some products that they sell and, you know, but Mm -hmm. I, I'm still trying to figure out like, where else is the, what else, what other interventions (laughs) are there? So what else are you recommending? Sure, sure. Well, there's basically three categories. There's hormonal solutions, there's non-hormonal um, prescription-based solutions, and, and non-prescription. And then there are alternative and complementary medicine interventions. Mm-hmm. So we currently don't offer uh, a telehealth solution. So if women um, are interested in hormone therapy, we recommend that they have a conversation with their doctor mm-hmm. um, and specifically with a physician who is qualified in menopausal care and can really explain the different types of therapy that's available because mm-hmm. there are a number of them. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of doctors aren't trained in menopausal care, so they a lot of them can't even have that substantive conversation to be able to say, well, here's the differences between oral hormone replacement yeah. therapy or, you know, the patch or vaginal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if women want to go down that path and, and explore that, they just need to make sure that they have a qualified physician and that they're only um, using prescription uh, treatments that have been approved by the FDA. Mm. And how does one know if, uh, if their physician is menopause approved? Well, you can go to the North American Menopause Society website and they have a database that you can do a lookup of physicians and nurse practitioners who Mm -hmm. are certified in menopausal care. So that's Mm -hmm. a great resource for women if they're looking for a doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't have a doctor or they're disappointed by their doctor visit you know, I always say, don't give up. I know it's frustrating, mm-hmm. but there's no reason that you should suffer because there are some expert physicians that are out there. And so from a Lisa health perspective, we're not trying to disintermediate the physician and get in between the patient physician relationship. Mm-hmm. We're there to complement the relationship because you have situations where physicians aren't trained. So we can bridge that gap mm-hmm. uh, for women, but you also have situations where even if the physician is trained, they don't know a lot about lifestyle interventions mm-hmm. and they also don't have the time yeah. to sit with a woman and, and kind of go through the whole course of, of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every physician I've talked to, you know, they strongly recommend that women undertake uh, three to six months of lifestyle interventions unless their symptoms are really severe. Uh, they like to see what, what the impact of lifestyle changes has on a woman's symptomatology which can actually be quite significant. Uh, So that's really where Lisa health comes into play because we've, you know, we've done all the the legwork. And so we can provide that personalized plan to a woman and help support her through that holistic side of her journey. And even if you are taking hormone replacement therapy, it's not going to address all of your symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's something for women to really keep in mind is that it's not, 
you know, it's not like a magic pill that you take mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you're exactly the way you were before <laughs> you started having menopause symptoms. Uh, you still need to engage in lifestyle behaviors because you're entering not only a menopause transition, but a midlife transition. You're in a new life stage and your body is changing and it's the, the old things you used to do or not do. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they, I'm sorry, but you know, for most of us, they just don't work anymore. Yeah, And yeah. so you need to really embark on, um, a journey of exploring new lifestyle changes. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, that's definitely one way to look at femtech, which is, you know, any type of thing that's, you know, affecting a woman and the doctor says the solution is a lifestyle change, having some kind of program she can sign up for to support her through Mm -hmm. that because just, you know, everyone in the country knows and hopefully in the world as well. Like if you eat well, Uh then you won't get diabetes, right? Like type two diabetes, but yet we continue to eat a lot of ice cream, me included. Uh Um, and so (laughs) it's so yummy. (laughs) And so I, especially in quarantine, I've like, I bought some ice cream and I was like, all right, you can only eat this every three days. (laughs) We need Uh to make a schedule, you know? Well, but, then you're following our 80-20 rule, oh, which is 80% of the, 80% of the time you're, you're on track and, you know, working what I kind of call your program, you know, your lifestyle program. And 20% of the time you cut yourself some slack and have a little fun and enjoy the things that give you pleasure. Oh my gosh. I love that, Anne, because I'm mm-hmm. a perfectionist. And so I you know, literally have to give myself 72 hour rules. And, you know, I am very rigid. And if I can't do it perfect, I'm so hard on myself. And I'm sure there's a lot of women. Um, let me not assume, are there a lot of women on your community? You know, I saw you have a, a community forum that women can like kind of join. Do a lot of women struggle with that, with the perfectionism thing? Well, I think a lot of women just struggle with, you know, cravings, right? Cravings Mm. for sugar, craving for junk food, you know, craving for, you know, sometimes, you know, drinking a little more wine Mm -hmm. than, you know, maybe we should at this stage. Um, I think we all deal with that. We all wrestle with, you know, having cravings. And um, especially when you start to sleep um, less and Mm. have poor sleep, which is really common in midlife, you know, your brain starts sending these signals of, you know, I need energy to, you know, kind of fuel your body and get you through the day. And so that feeds a lot of the cravings that we have. It tends to, Mm. I mean, there's certainly other reasons why, you know, we tend to reach for, you know, something sweet uh, in the afternoon uh, to kind of pick us up. Hmm. But it definitely is a very common problem for midlife women. Um, And also weight gain, you know, that's a big thing for them Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I noticed you use the word midlife a lot on your Mm -hmm. uh, website. So do you talk to your, you know, users, your members more about midlife and not just menopause? Like, can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So, you know, we do have a focus on menopause because it's such a pivotal period in a woman's life where the vast majority of us were not prepared. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't like you went in, you were going to your well woman visits every year and they're like, okay, you know, let's sit down and talk about menopause and what to expect. You know, you get that at other junctures earlier in life, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's like crickets when it comes to menopause, like nobody talks about it. 
And so that's really a common theme I hear from women is I wish somebody would have told me what to expect. And so we feel like, you know, menopause is like the perfect kind of wedge in um, for women entering this life stage because they're having all these changes in their body and these symptoms and they feel out of control. Like the body they had is like, is they don't recognize Mm -hmm. and they just want their old self back. So they're really in this high kind of knowledge seeking place. You know, they're highly activated to make changes. Mm -hmm. Um, So we like to say that this is a good time to connect with them and establish the relationship but we really see ourselves as, you know, supporting a woman, you know, across that midlife stage, which I loosely define as, you know, sort of 40 to 70. But mm-hmm. quite honestly, the lines on either side are blurring. Yeah. Uh, you know, older women, I have, you know, I have friends who are, you know, 70. And if I said, Oh well, you know you're you're an elder. You're elderly. They would, just, they, would they would slap me if we weren't in quarantine. They would slap me. Um, you know they're so vibrant and active and gorgeous, and like mm-hmm. they don't identify with being an elder. Yeah. So yeah. I think that line is definitely blurring about when you start to mm. call someone elderly. Um, but even at the younger end of the scale, you know it is feasible for women to experience menopause prematurely mm-hmm. so before age 40 and that's you know it's not a good thing from a health perspective but you know one to two percent of women mm-hmm. will um, start menopause before age 40 wow and so you know we do get women um come in who are just their worlds are really rocked because you know it's one thing when you're in your mid to late 40s or early 50s and you kind of go yeah i kind of knew it would yeah. probably happen yeah. around this time but, you know, if you're in your 30s, like, wow, it's an eye opener. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When do you think that people should start to learn about menopause? Should it be part of like high school education? Not that that's pro- like excellent as is, but, you know, when are the touch points that women should start to sure. learn about this stuff? Well, you know, we do, we educate young girls about, you know, about their first period, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of prepare them because we don't want them to be really shocked and surprised. And then when you enter your teen years, you know, you get educated on, you know, sexual well-being, Mm -hmm. um, you know, pregnancy, birth control. So now you're talking about, you know, reproductive, um, you know, the reproductive phase, right? Because you have to explain why, mm-hmm. you know, you should use birth control so you don't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we really bombard women, you know, in their twenties and thirties with everything is about pregnancy and fertility. Yeah, yeah. As if that's the pinnacle of a woman's life, yeah, yeah. which I argue actually menopause is really the pinnacle. Ooh. But I feel like there's, you know, there's certain reasons from a societal perspective that I think, you know, pregnancy is, um, that sort of pinnacle and kind of focal point. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you think about how menopause has been treated historically, it's like, okay, well, you know, now you're, you know, you're getting into the menopause transition, your reproductive capacity is declining or it's diminished altogether. So, okay, well, you're not really relevant anymore. So, see you, you know, go off and be invisible. And that's really a shame. And I think women are starting to push back on that. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is, you know, really thrills me. And we're part of that movement of making menopause mainstream. But to go back to your question of when you should start talking to um, women about menopause, well, if you're talking to them about pregnancy in their teen years, you should also talk to them about the full continuum of women's health. Yeah, why like, stop halfway? You know, this, <laughs> this is how it all kind of unfolds. And then, you know, as you get older and you, you know, ideally are going in for that well woman visit every year, you know, there should be, you know, in your 30s, you should start to really more seriously talk to women. Mm-hmm. You know, one reason is you don't want them to have menopause pause prematurely. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you really want that to happen naturally, um, you know, in the appropriate sort of age range, Mm -hmm. uh, because it puts you at higher risk of cardiovascular disease Mm -hmm. and osteoporosis and and other things. Um, But, you know, a lot of what kind of sets you up for, I would say, a healthier transition with fewer uh, annoying symptoms is being healthy to begin with, yeah. right? So yeah. the sooner you engage in healthy lifestyle behaviors, you know, it's not a guarantee. There's a lot of factors that come into play, you know, genetics, race, um, all sorts of things. But, you know, you're more likely to have a smoother transition if you undertake lifestyle behaviors mm-hmm. early on. Yeah. So, and also you just don't have women who just wake up one day feeling like they've been blindsided. I don't think anyone should be put into that position health-wise when we know for a fact that every woman is going to experience menopause. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. It's a, it seems so simple, right? Like we already tell little, you know, young girls and boys about periods, like, let's just finish the story right. and just tell exactly. like one more page in the, the book. Chapter out. Yeah. <laughs> one more page. It just says, and by it's the like, way, one day it stops called menopause, you know, like, yeah. I feel like a woman wrote that book and then, you know, a man ripped the last chapter out and threw it away and said, no, we don't need to tell them about this. I mean, I'm sorry for any male listeners. I don't mean to be too harsh on, you know, the male sex, but we do know that um, there was a shift in how menopause was viewed that mm. was kind of coincident with, um, you know, medical, you know, medical care and men dominating the, the medical profession in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. There was a whole shift in how they were viewing and treating menopause. Really? Was menopause seen as like a, you know, wise woman experience and then it turned into yes. this like secret experience yeah in a lot of societies uh it was treated as you know something to be revered and as a woman you had an even higher status in the community um but there are also cultures that don't even have a word for it what Uh, yeah yeah there's a wonderful book called slow moon climbs that came out uh last year and um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. We will but tag it. She does a beautiful job of um, really digging into, um, you know, the history and origin of menopause, and and also digging in to the different um, cultures around the world and how menopause has been viewed. Oh my gosh! Or in some cases, not viewed because they don't even have a name for it. We got to get her on um, the show. you do you do wow that's it's sad and it's crazy you know we had Mm -hmm. Amina from Tokyo on here a few weeks ago and she was telling us about 
you know, they don't have the word for sexual health in Japanese. And so they right. just say it with a Japanese accent, but everyone thinks about sexual health with that, you know, Japanese accent as fertility. And she's like, no, it's like orgasm, mm-hmm. y'all. It's like, right. <laughs> it's like comfortable <laughs> sex. It's, you know, it's not just right. about baby making. Wow. That's yeah. super fascinating. And you mm-hmm. said something about um, different ethnicities, right? Well, you mm-hmm. know, you have all this data, which I just love. It's data-driven company, using data for good. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any trends in like, or do you? was it previously known that different, um, you know, races experience menopause differently or certain symptoms affect certain races differently? Mm-hmm. And was mm-hmm. it known before or are you actually sure. discovering some of these things through your data? Sure. Well, I'm not to cl- not going to claim to have discovered that. There is a study, a very long-standing study called SWAN, the study of women across the nation. Oh. It's been running for several decades, and so they've been following women in midlife. And there's been um, just an amazing body of research that has come out of that study. Mm-hmm. Uh, they continue to publish um, uh, new findings all the time. But they, um, some of the findings they published are around, you know, how women of different ethnicities experience menopause symptoms. So, for example, if you're African American, uh, you're more likely to have, you know, moderate to severe hot flashes and to have them for a longer period of time. But if you're Japanese, you're more likely to not have hot flashes or to have, you know, extremely mild hot flashes. Uh Wow. Uh, you, you know, they don't always know why. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, the hypothesis with Japanese women is they have a lot of soy in their diet. So mm-hmm. it's is a phytoestrogen. Oh. It's a plant-based estrogen. Uh, so, I mean, it, which they've been consuming over their entire life mm-hmm. um, in, mm-hmm. in fairly high quantities. Mm-hmm. So there's this hypothesis that it's the diet that has provided that supplemental estrogen. They're also very thin, as you know, you know, they're, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't eat as much as we do in the U S and so that's another part of the theory is, you know, just their whole lifestyle is such that, um, it has lent itself to an easier menopause transition. Hmm. Super fascinating. The geneticist mm-hmm. in me is just like, oh my gosh, the GWAS yes. studies. Dig in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You've got to dig in. And what have um, you know, women using your service been telling you? Uh, they're excited, you know, quite honestly, that you know, companies like Lisa Health are starting to support their mm-hmm. journey um, and provide them with, um, as we do with, you know, evidence-based, you know, expert backed, Mm -hmm. um, guidance, uh, because that's been a huge problem. You know, if you go online, you know, they're very confused, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there and, you know, a lot of people and companies selling remedies that, that don't work. Yeah. So they're excited that, you know, there's a platform like Lisa Health that's offering, um, you know, as I said, evidence-based, trusted, science-backed guidance. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that all over your website, which again, I love. And I wanted to ask you, and you've already gave us a bunch of data points, but mm-hmm. you know, what it are, th- are there lots of laboratories out there doing research on menopause right now? Or is it a lot? Is it based on old science or 
who who's generating data and is it you know mm-hmm. a lot of it not so much well i mean there's never enough research in women's health in my mm-hmm. opinion and certainly not in menopause mm-hmm. but that said there are a number of excellent researchers out there mm-hmm. uh you've got a whole group of uh individuals who support the swan study mm-hmm. um but then there are also um researchers that are contributing um, in a variety of areas, it could be related to hot flashes, it could be related to sleep, it could be weight gain. They tend to have a, a particular area of interest yeah, yeah. Um, that they really focus on. Mm-hmm. So there is still a very, um, I think, healthy amount of research that's being done. And uh, there's a publication uh, devoted specifically to menopause uh, that comes out every month. So you can check it out. I got to subscribe to that. Menopause. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> you know, it's weird when you are in such a quote unquote new industry because women's health is somehow new. Mm-hmm. Like I bought so many domain names with the word femtech in it because they were mm-hmm. all available, you know, right. and for anyone who's ever bought a domain name, like that's impossible. So the fact that they called their magazine or their subscription, like, menopause is and because no one else had one yet it's like crazy to me but also that's par for the course um what are some you know innovations that you think need to happen in femtech we have a lot of listeners here that want to start a company um they love women's health and wellness but they don't know where to start what do you think are some areas that need help Well, I think across the board, you know, more technology driven solutions Mm. that use the cutting edge technology that's out there. I mean, Mm. from my perspective, you know, just taking menopause as an example, um, you know, why wouldn't you use technology to manage menopause? I mean, there are apps and tests and devices and, you know, all sorts of things related to almost every condition under the sun. Um, but not as many for women's health. So I do think that we really need to double down on the tech side mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, leverage, you know, everything that's currently out there. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly there can always be, you know, better care for women, um, you know, in the clinical setting. But I think as we're seeing with the COVID crisis, uh, the acceleration of the use of technology, mm-hmm. which I think in the U.S. is long overdue. Yeah. So while you hear a lot about telehealth, there's still, you know, there's still a lot that can be done with artificial intelligence. Uh, so I really encourage, you know, entrepreneurs to think more about deep tech mm. um, as opposed to sort of surfacey tech. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, because you know, billions, I'll go with billions of dollars have been poured into technologies for, you know, delivering food to my house, (laughs) you know, or whatever. And uh, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's just reutilize it for women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. So yeah, look at other, you know, industries and how they're leveraging technology, Uh, particularly if you're looking at a consumer facing play. Mm -hmm. Um, but even if, you know, even if it's B2B, I mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned of, um, companies that have been very successful, um, applying technology to other non-healthcare problems. So healthcare just, you know, I'm, I'm think one of the only 
positive outcomes of COVID is the fact that um, it is forcing us, you know, within the healthcare industry to move faster from a tech perspective. And also it's pushing on consumers to embrace technology to manage their health. Yes. I'm so excited for women's health and wellness uh, with this push to telehealth. Uh, Recent, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some statistics came out that UCSF, uh, the OB-GYN department there, they were only doing 3% of their prenatal care appointments on telehealth before COVID. Uh-huh. And now right. with COVID, they're doing about 65 to 70% of their po- prenatal care right. appointments right. on telehealth. And guess what? They said that it's convenient and actually preferred by both the doctor and the patient. <laughs> and so it's right. like, why did it take a pandemic to do this? But you know what? Uh-huh. Like, they're using it and they're like, oh, wait, this is awesome. And, uh, you know, I describe it like right. changing a, a, a computer. Like you go from uh-huh. PC to Mac, the first week's horrible, right? Uh-huh. But once you get into it, you're like, well, how uh-huh. did I ever use, you know, whatever I was using before? This is not a Mac advertisement, I promise. Uh-huh. Um, but <laughs> and I would suspect, I don't have the data, but I would suspect that, you know, compliance with appointments is actually mm-hmm. better because you don't have the logistics, especially yes. for low-income women. I've done a lot of work on a volunteer basis um, in the community, and I know that transportation is always a huge issue yes. for patients uh, in that um, kind of the lower socioeconomic um, bands. And so anything you can do to reduce the barriers. Yes. And so if one barrier is I don't have transportation to get to my appointment, well, now with telehealth, you've just eliminated that. Yeah. Um, and, and I know from my days in Really Health, where we created the first suite of patient physician online communication tools, including the web visit, which is really the precursor to today's telehealth, you know, we found um, physicians would tell us that patients would actually share more, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that web interaction than they would in the office. And so we found that it actually enhanced communication and the quality of the relationship. So I think that, you know, perhaps wrongly there was this perspective of, well, if we're not face-to-face in, in the office, you know, we're going to lose that human connection. And I would argue against that based on the experience I had earlier in my career. And right. I'm just personally excited to just kind of see all of this sort of pull through, you know, many yeah. years later. Yeah, that's right. And I love the accessibility part, right? Like I'm, I mm-hmm. feel happy about promoting, you know, conveniency to privileged women who probably could have gone mm-hmm. to the doctor anyway. But the idea mm-hmm. of women who would did not have health or not health care, excuse me, a child care for their other kids and had to take a mm-hmm. bus to get right. their prenatal care. I think about that woman. And I've also been hearing a lot about these OB-GYN deserts. It's this term mm-hmm. I keep hearing. Oh, that there's like literally whole counties that don't have mm-hmm. an OB-GYN. <laughs> and, you know, right. so I'm like, wow, one telehealth, you know, a program that's available on their browser allows them mm-hmm. to have OB-GYNs, you know? Mm-hmm. That's right. That. You know, you do have parts of the country where they really lack those specialized women's health resources mm-hmm. and even more specifically around menopausal care. So even if there is one OB-GYN in the county, uh, you know, the likelihood that that individual will have, you know, the training that, that's ideally required yes. to support a menopausal woman is, yeah. you know, pretty low. Yeah. Which, by the way, do you know why OB-GYNs don't learn a lot about menopause? 
Why, why is that? Why is there a lack well, of it, education? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's not taught very, I mean, you don't get much on it in medical school or in residency. Mm-hmm. They've done some surveys on that. And so, you know, it's very, it's a very small, insignificant part of their training. Oh and then God. I think it, you know, for half of their patients or all of them, if they're OBGYNs, it's just like blows <laughs> my mind. Like who read, who wrote that curriculum? <laughs> I know, I know. And then when you think about the age you're at when you're in medical school, you know, you're always mostly interested in the life stage that you are mm. currently in. So if you're in your 20s, right, um, you know, you're more concerned about sexual health, pregnancy, yeah. Yeah. You know, those are things that, that are very relatable to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and menopause seems very far off. Yeah. Um, that said, there have been some wonderful physicians who have uh, fortunately embraced menopause as their mm-hmm. area of specialization. And so we do have a foundation that we can build on. Yeah. And I would just want to, we were thinking about at Femtech Focus, we have lots of ideas, almost, almost too many ideas. We have one advisor, Tina. She's always telling me to focus. She's going to love that I've said mm-hmm. that on record. Um, <laughs> she's like, your organization is called Focus. You got to focus yourself. But one of the ideas is this like Femtech Institute where we actually help make sure that women's health is inside of curriculums. Like if you are a mm-hmm. biomedical engineer you should learn about the vaginal canal and like how it's shaped mm-hmm. and stuff and vaginal tissue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're uh, um, uh, OB-GYN, you better have a lot of menopause and all this other stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. One of the many ideas I want to pursue <laughs> to help women's health yeah. and wellness. <laughs> well, ideally there would be a balance across the continuum of women's health from a training perspective yes. and, um, not paying, you know, undue attention to just, you know, one phase. Mm-hmm. And not every woman, you know, has a child. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are probably other things that I was more, uh, more interested in, yeah. you know, yeah. talking to my doctor about, but, you know, they weren't necessarily that well trained on those other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. And I, once again, continue to learn so much on this podcast. Thank you, listeners, for <laughs> for listening into my lessons every day about, about <laughs> women's health. Um, we have one last question that our audience sure. loves, which is, Femtech is an industry as a whole. What do we need the most right now? Uh, we need advocacy mm. to, uh, you know, have more support from an investment perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need more money flowing into the space. I know you always see these things of, yeah, you know, femtech investments are up, but you know, it's still a very small percentage, you yeah. know, relative to other areas of healthcare. So I do think we need, you know, a, a continued push for more and more investment because there are really smart, you know, entrepreneurs out there who, I think are, you know, would love to jump in and, you know, try to solve the, the problem. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think we'd like to expand the industry and allow for more people to come in and accelerate the pace of change. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've been talking a lot about if you only look up how many investors are femtech investors because femtech's in their name or they say it in their tagline, 
you're only mm-hmm. going to come up with a handful. But mm-hmm. if you look at every investor that invests in consumer products or health IT or medical mm-hmm. devices, like femtech investor list grows very, very long. And so mm-hmm. part of my mission is like, how do I get these investors to embrace like they are a femtech investor, right? And some of my ideas have been like, I'm just going to travel the world and do lunch and learns, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. tell them why it would be in their benefit to highlight their femtech investments. But I haven't figured out what the business model is for that yet, besides the investors pay for the lunch. But, you know, I, I'm well, just like, how do I do this? You know, this just this tour of femtech education for investors. Well, I think they, you know, specifically, there needs to be more encouragement of investment, you know, at the seed stage. Uh, yeah. You know, because yeah. if you look at Mtech as a whole, you know, there's still not that many companies that have even made it to their Series A. Yeah. And yeah. even fewer that have made it beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And so we still have a lot of really early stage companies. And again, more companies that I think, you know, could start, but they need that early support they of the do. venture capital community. That's right. So I'd love to see more money coming in at a seed stage, mm-hmm. you know, them taking a little bit more risk. Yeah. Um, I think that would really boost the uh, industry as well. All right. I will restrict my lunch and learns to angel networks mm-hmm. and seed funds. <laughs> Good start. Yeah, yeah, it would. Well, I uh, have really, really enjoyed this conversation. You are so knowledgeable about menopause, and um, I, you know, I already know what the title is: making menopause mainstream. Love it. This is great. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I've had a lot of fun, and I'm happy to come back anytime because there's so many juicy ish things that we mm-hmm. did not even touch. We didn't talk about vaginal dryness. We didn't talk about hot flashes. We didn't talk about sleep, urinary incontinence. There's 34 symptoms of menopause. So you can have me back every week and Perfect. I'll talk about the Oh my gosh. <laughs> Done. Done deal. Thank you so much. Great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Brittany. It was a blast. Bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Anne Garnier, CEO and founder of Lisa Health. Lisa Health envisions a world where midlife women's health is a global priority and every woman gets the support and resources she needs to have the well-being and opportunities that she deserves. What a mission statement. That is amazing. And that is totally what Femtech Focus is about too. So this is really great alignment today. And, you know, I want all of our listeners to think, why don't we talk about menopause when we teach girls about periods? Why do we always leave out the last part of the story? And then, you know, it's just not fair for us to find out afterwards while we're going through it. So how can we start talking about menopause sooner? This is a great interview today. And I want to remind you this week on June 25th, Women of Wearables is having their virtual conference, the Femtech Forum. You can still get tickets at womenofwearables.com. Femtech Focus is a proud community sponsor of this conference. Now, if you love this podcast as much as I do, make sure you subscribe, review, and rate. We need those in order to get populated in the app store. So make sure you are telling your friends, tell everybody, write us a comment, give us five stars, and follow us on social media at Femtech Focus. And until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm